Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with all of you. Glad to have you with us. Um, it is a beautiful day for October 1st. A little weird, as warm as it is, but anyone else, fall fans, I'm a big fall favorite season. Can't, doesn't get much better than this. Uh, I want to quickly, uh, two things dismiss. We have point seekers this morning, which is pre-K through first grade today. So if any young ones with us today, there's a great opportunity for them that uh, if they want to make their way out uh, for continued worship. And also, this is a communion Sunday, so if you didn't happen to see these cups as you're making your way in, please feel free at any time to uh, go ahead and grab one of those. Even over the midst of our study right now, we'll be taking communion at the end of the morning together. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of different feelings out there. I think one of the best feelings is the feeling that we receive when we are encouraged. Anybody else feel that way? I, I think that is just one of the best. If you're anything like me, just a small dose of encouragement, just a simple word, that, that can get me through the entire day. Anyone else? Uh, my, uh, my dad, who himself was a huge encourager, uh, my dad used to always say to me, the thing about encouragement, Jared, is that it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to be an encourager, but it means everything to the person that you encourage. And those are just words that I've always tried to live by. And this idea of encouragement just seems to capture the spirit of our passage this morning. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there are some in the racks below the chairs. If you're new, we also have slides that will help us along through our morning. But I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We are going to be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning for a sermon that I have titled, Encouraged by the Gospel. And in this text, the Apostle Paul is making every effort to encourage this church by sharing his heart with them uh, and how the gospel has encouraged his life. And so we're going to look at that more closely this morning. I want to start by just reading this section for us, verses 8 through 13, just so we have a sense of what we're going to be studying and returning to these one verse at a time. So Paul writes here in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you, and I've been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. In many ways, this passage is helpful to us, because this passage is really about perspective. Most specifically, Paul's perspective as it relates to the very thing he has been set apart for. If you remember this from verse 1, this really seems to kind of anchor us throughout this letter. Paul's been set apart at the end of verse 1 for, you see what that is? For the gospel of God. And this gospel, verse 16 to Paul, is the very power of God. And so much of what God gives to us in the gospel is a matter of perspective. What, what, what we think 
the worldview by which we see things. And I think this is what Paul is calling our attention to. That this gospel of God is the proof of his love. It's fulfilled his promises, all of which we've seen in the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son. And the outcome of this love fulfilled in Jesus is an invitation for us to live an entirely new life according to his grace. This is something that we thought about last week. Grace is where God gives you something that you do not deserve. And this is why the gospel of God in Christ changes our perspective. Because in the midst of a bleak and weary world, we find hope in a risen king who has conquered for us our most urgent and serious dilemma, which is death itself. And there can be no greater encouragement than this, that in Jesus, death can no longer boast. This is why Paul himself writes, like in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31, that by his doing, this is God, it's always about God, always has been, always will be, that by his doing, you, this is his grace, giving to you what you don't deserve. God gave you something which was Christ. And we saw this from Paul again, even last week in verses 1 through 7, that we have received, Paul says in verse 5, grace. Well, what is it that we've received? He tells us in verses 3 and 4, matters concerning his son. You have received Jesus And it's Jesus who became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. To what end? So that, Paul says in verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, death no longer has reason. Death no longer has victory. He has defeated the final enemy. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so Paul is providing ample reasons for our encouragement this morning By pointing us to Jesus, as we see in verses 1 through 7, and as we thought about last week, as Paul considers this gospel he has been set apart for, this gospel from God, and we consider what we have received according to his grace, Paul, as we have seen going back to last week, if Saul can become Paul, and giving consideration of this transformation that can only be done by God, or... If this community that he is writing to in Rome, which is comprised of Jew and Gentile, can live as one under a common confession of Jesus and, 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 and understand this unique confession of a community has come about without any direct apostolic leadership. And if this community can carry this faith, a faith that Paul says in verse 8 inspires is being made known throughout the rest of the world... If God can do that, if he can change a Saul into a Paul and create a powerful witness among a community in Rome, then God can do anything. And this is also what Paul implies elsewhere when he writes like in Philippians 4.19, that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so the point, friends, is if God can deliver us from death through the free gift of his righteousness in Christ. And if a mortal creature of dust can become a saint who is beloved of God, which Paul talks about in verse 7. 
If he can do those things, then come what may, my heart has all that it needs to be encouraged by the gospel. As Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you all the thanks and praise this morning for a great gospel full of good news because it's all about you. And because it's all about you, it possesses profound power, a power that transforms and changes a Saul into a Paul, a a profound power that moves a community in the midst of a difficult environment like Rome to, to give influence and life and encouragement throughout much of the Roman Empire. You are a great God, worthy of our praise. Because you have come to us and have given us the gift of your son, Jesus, so that we can have life, true life, through the forgiveness of sins that lasts forever. Because it's in you, you who exists, both now and forevermore. So we love you. We thank you for this gospel hope. And I pray that this would continue to be an encouragement to our spirits today and in the days to come. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Well, I have five points for us this morning. That doesn't necessarily mean the sermon's going to be longer. It just means that we're going to go through our points quicker, okay? So five points, but really what I, what I want us to think about are, what, what they are, they really are five different ways that the gospel encourages us. Five different ways that the gospel encourages us. So number one, the gospel encourages us to be thankful. It encourages us to be thankful. Let's take a look at verse 8. Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, I know this may sound like a rather simple or innocent question, but it's an important question to ask. What is the source of Paul's thankfulness? Why is the very first thing that he is doing? He says it himself, verse 8, first. And if, if you continue to read on, there really is no second. Right, So it's just like he just moves on. But the first thing he is doing, the, the, the posture of his heart, if you will, is to give thanks. What is the source of his thankfulness? And again, it sounds like an innocent and easy question. But is Paul thankful because of the spreading of this influence that is going throughout the Roman Empire? Is he thankful because of the evidence of faith that exists in the Roman community? In some ways, the answer is yes. But the source of Paul's thankfulness, because all of those things, the the influence that is spreading throughout the Roman Empire, the faith that exists that is creating this movement, those are simply an outworking, a kind of fruitfulness of a greater thing. And that thing that Paul is thankful for is God alone. That the first thing I'm thinking is the fact That God is the source and the cause of the reasons why I am thankful. Does that make sense? And so he's thankful for God alone. For the specific reason of God's gracious activity in and through the life of these believers. Now on a very practical level, Paul is thankful because as he considers the testimony of the church in Rome, he sees the practical example of God's greatness in his own life. 
He looks at what God is doing among these believers and the influence that is being had throughout the Roman Empire. And he sees the gracious activity of God. And in looking at them, it is a reminder to him of the same gracious activity that God has done in his own life. And what a wonderful example, a kind of application for us as well. Are are we giving God thanks and praise for the work he has done in our life when we look at the work that God has done in the lives of others? Now, now in a, a sinful context, we call that envy. We look at what is going on in another person's life, and we pause to consider what's going on in their life, and we consider why is that maybe not going on in my life? Does that make sense? So we do that all the time. But what Paul is demonstrating here is this capacity to look at what God has been doing in another person's life, see the greatness of his work in their life, and to give pause and consideration to how he has been doing those things in my life as well. The way that he has moved in their lives. And God has been doing the same stuff. Now, in some ways, we could say that nothing about this fellowship makes sense what's going on in this church in Rome. Their faith is an undeniable example of God's saving grace. Their faith is an undeniable example of God's saving grace for God. Remember John three sixteen. it's all about God. Jesus loves us. He died for us. Our sins are forgiven. We have everlasting life as we know John three sixteen. but none of that stuff happens if not For what? God. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God. None of that happens if not he, he made him who knew no sin. The gospel is all about God who has revealed himself in a powerful and wonderful way to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so Paul's looking at this Roman church and he's giving thanks to God as he observes their life. He is reminded of what he has done in his life, what God's done for him. And he realizes that this faith of mine, the very capacity that I have to believe, the passion to live, The joy to serve, all of it, is an undeniable example of God's saving grace. Because when I look at this church in Rome, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't just happen on its own. This church doesn't exist because of Paul. He he didn't kind of muster it up and move it himself and get it going. We, We have no evidence that this church was started by any other apostle, as an example. It just is. It just exists. This church exists, their faith exists because of God alone. There is no other explanation than his work calling them and sustaining them. And the magnifying reality of God's grace is also shown also in the location of these faith-filled witnesses. Now, what I mean by that, I touched on this briefly last week, but Rome was a spectacle for all the sensational and seductive sins. We're going to see this in verses 18 to 32, but this is a place where unrighteousness is unbound. 
And it was against this backdrop of dark immorality that the light of Christ is shining bright for all to see. For Paul, all of these things, the very origin of their faith, the passion to practice their faith, all of it was an evidence of God's great and intimate and abiding grace. And so God was to be praised first, Paul says, first, above anything else, verse 8, I want to thank my God. Because a sinner like me, Paul is saying, a sinner like me looks upon this church, sees what is going on, and sees the fruit of God's work in them as it exists also in him. And he is thankful because, as we are reminded, like in 1 Peter 2.9, it is the saving grace of God. And I, I talked about this last week, but the gospel calls us in two ways. The gospel calls us out of something. Remember that? And the gospel calls us to something. And Paul's seeing that at work in the church in Rome as it's been at work in his own life. Like 1 Peter 2.9, he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and Paul is thankful. And so like Paul, are we, are we starting our day? Are, are we giving first place to a thankful heart in all that we do? Are we thankful just for the sheer fact that God is? That God does, that he is at work in your life? Do you wake up and have an attitude and a spirit of thanksgiving for the fact that he is the creator of your life, that the sun has risen again, that there is breath in your lungs, that your heart is beating all because of God? Do you thank him for just the sheer fact that he sustains you and keeps you through your day? Are you thankful for all that you have, right? Even, even our material possessions, all of these frivolous little things are all ultimately an aspect of God. He's given you the physical capacities and strengths and abilities. He's, he's given you the intellectual capacities and abilities. All of these things that work together to put yourself in a position to be accomplished in whatever area that you are working in. That through that accomplishment gives you an ability to receive something. In this case, maybe it's a form of compensation so that you have the ability to provide food on the table, a roof over the home, wheels to roll on, clothes to enjoy. It's all because of God. And so do we thank him? Are we living a lifestyle of thanksgiving? Number two. Number two, the gospel encourages us to be prayerful. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. The gospel encourages us to be prayerful because God has made possible our fellowship with him through his son Jesus. Now, if we look back to verse 8, Paul says something that I fear we take for granted far too often. Paul, look again at the beginning of verse 8. Paul says this, I thank my God. You might want to even circle that. I thank my God 
through Jesus Christ. We must always remember and never take for granted that we, friends, have a personal relationship with our creator, that God is not some distant, transcendent, impersonal force that leaves us wanting and confused and removed. Christianity ultimately is about a relationship, not a religion. And our fellowship with God is made possible because of Jesus Christ alone. He is the source. Paul says it here in verse 9. He is the source of Paul's ministry. Paul says, I serve in my spirit, the essence of who I am. I, I am a slave to this very thing. And all that I do is about the preaching of the gospel of his son. So he is the source of Paul's ministry. He is the substance of Paul's ministry. And the good news of God is the fullness of his revelation in the person of Jesus, whom we know to be Savior the Christ, and who we surrender to be Lord, who is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. So let me go back to this point on prayer. The gospel encourages us to be prayerful because Jesus makes prayer possible. Jesus takes us to the throne of grace and he gives us access forever to God. Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 25. It'll be on the screen as well. Therefore he, being Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is why Paul prays unceasingly, because he understands that the source and substance of life belongs to Jesus alone. It's like our last point on thankfulness. Paul is thankful to God because the church in Rome, along with their faith, is a powerful reminder of God's gracious activity in their life. And if it doesn't take a genius to realize that if God is the source and substance of true and lasting life, then drawing near to him in confidence through Jesus is a special blessing we should not pass over in our life. If this is what God does, if this is who he is, if this is what he's provided for you, why would we be so dismissive of that? The gospel makes prayer possible, but Paul also understands that prayer makes the gospel possible. In other words, God has the power to save, and God has a heart of grace like we learned last week, so it would be wise for us to bow our hearts in prayer before we ever attempt to do anything on our own. E.M. Bounds, uh, early 20th century, late 19th century guy, wrote nine books on prayer. I love this quote. Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed. Again, is that how we see prayer? Just like starting our day and having an attitude and posture of thanksgiving simply because of God, do we understand the grace that has been given to us, which is full access to the throne of God in Jesus? 
who has the power to change a Saul to Paul, the power to make a compelling witness in Rome through a church like the Gentile and the Jew, do we realize the access that we have when in Christ we can enjoy intimate, abiding fellowship with the creator of heaven and earth who calls you his very own, who knows every hair on your head, and who loves you before a time as you know it ever began. This isn't a duty. This is a privilege. Number three, the gospel encourages us to be gathered. It encourages us to be gathered. Let's look now at verse 11. For I long to see you, Paul writes, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. It's clear. We've already covered this. Paul, he desires to be in Rome. He has long desired to be that. Paul, a Roman citizen from Tarsus, has actually never been to Rome. And now he wants to go. It is clear. Now, what we also know is that Paul, by, verse, by chapter 16, his kind of final remarks, we know Paul knows at least a few people from this city. Um, but that's it. But despite the obvious distance between Paul and this fellowship, think about this now, only maybe knows a few people, Never even been to the city. Despite this distance, he is still able to say at the beginning of verse 11, I long to see you. That sounds like a very intimate relationship, right? That we would, we would hold probably only for our really close family members, our parents or our children or a loved one to some extent. I long, not like I look forward to it. I hope it works out. It'd be so great to catch up again. I long to see you. There's something special that only the gospel can do. There's something that only the gospel can do. It transcends language. It transcends cultures. It even transcends distance to bind men and women together in fellowship under the banner of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't have the time of memories or experiences to draw his hearts to theirs as if they have something they can relate to from a past experience, but he does have the heart of Jesus. And this shared confession and the hope and promise of Jesus Christ binds their lives together under a common purpose, a common hope. And this is true for you and I who are even here today. We may not have the same kind of memories or experiences that draw our stories together, but we have this shared confession in Jesus and the hope of the gospel of God. I've been fortunate in my life to travel to nearly 30 countries most of which have been in the context of ministry. And not once did I travel into a new culture, to a new country, with a new language, and not feel embraced as a brother in Christ. And I imagine a lot of you have had similar experiences, whether it's in another country or not. Just going to a different church fellowship, for example, uh, running into a stranger who you come to know is also a follower of Christ, and there's just a different immediate feeling of, oh, oh, me too, right? There's this, this, this sense of, of delight and gladness that falls upon our hearts. This familiarity, this friendliness that we share with one another is directly related to our shared status as sons and daughters of God. We have a common father. And Paul longs to see people that he barely knows because he knows that we're always better together. 
Our common confession is a powerful witness to a watching world, yes. But our common confession is also a powerful encouragement in the midst of a dark world. No matter how great or awesome Paul was on his own as an individual, he needed the fellowship. And that is true for us as well. Paul longs to see them, to impart, he says, some spiritual gift so they may continue to be built up and encouraged. But this is what leads us now to our fourth point. Okay, the gospel encourages us to be humble. The gospel encourages us to be humble. Let's look quickly at verse 12 because points three and four kind of work together. All right, we just saw verse 11. So verse 12, Paul says, okay, I long to see you. I want to impart some gift to you that you may be established. Verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So if we join verses 12 and 11 together as we should, then a portion of the spiritual gift Paul wants to give them he says himself, is no different than what he wants or expects to receive, which is the encouragement of their fellowship. In other words, Paul expects to receive from them as much as he hopes to give to them. And a significant portion of what is to be given and received is the edification, the building up of one another based on each other's faith. What this looks like practically is the depositing of gospel truth into each other's lives. It's the continual reminder of these verses 3 and 4, this great faith we have concerning his son. This son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh that comes out of the promises seen in the scriptures, verse 2. We are depositing gospel truth into each other's lives so that we can always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And this is what I mean when I say the gospel encourages us to be humble. That the very basis of our saving faith is humility. Jesus himself said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who understand their spiritual poverty, that they have nothing, that there's nothing that you can give. There's nothing in your possession that you can present to God. And for him to be able to say, I didn't realize you were the lone exception, that we have nothing. And in understanding that from a place of humility, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who realize they can't save themselves. Humility is the basis, the foundation of saving faith. Now, Paul could have every reason to hold a spirit of pride. He was an apostle, built churches. In the very moment he's writing this letter, he's recruiting and gathering funds from all of these different churches throughout Greece and Macedonia. He's bringing it to the church in Jerusalem to resource them, to carry them. His name, his fame is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Paul was the greatest thinker, the greatest apologist, evangelist, church planter, author, missionary, pastor. Whew. I take a breath. What didn't this guy do? But he carried no pride. 
because the gospel transformed his self-righteousness into the righteousness of Christ. Paul knew he was once a Saul. And if not for the gospel of God, he would have remained Saul lost without hope. Who cares how long his resume would have been? As Charles Spurgeon once put it, humility is the proper estimate of one's self. Paul just simply understood in humility who he really was, who he really was. Once without Christ, now with Christ. And that's what made all the difference. Not him, but him. Amen? Amen. As Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reminds us, he who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and he took on the nature, the form of a bondservant, by putting on the likeness of human flesh, and he became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, this humility, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. Therefore, God the Son became, as we know, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the gospel humbles us. It keeps us humble because we serve a humble king. Lastly, the gospel encourages us to be missional. Let's look at verse 13, our final verse. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, another word, and maybe the translation you are using perhaps says this, but another word used to describe fruit is harvest. The idea Paul is conveying here is to gather up, to harvest what God has called him to do, to gather up this fruit, to to harvest what God has been doing in the hearts of his people. It is to gather up, to harvest what God has set apart for himself to be a people that belongs to him. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God for his own possession. He who has called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. Paul understands that he has been called for one purpose only, which is to gather up and and to reap, to harvest what God has been doing, specifically among the Gentile world. This is what God called him to when on the road to Damascus, he revealed himself in risen form. And in Acts chapter 9, he says, you are going to be my my person, my, my mouthpiece, specifically to this Gentile world. And so what strikes me most in this verse is the clarity of mission that comes from the gospel. The clarity of mission. Paul wants to come in order to do one thing only, to preach the gospel of his son to the Gentiles. And he's referring to those that are both inside and especially outside the church in Rome. Paul was transformed by a God of grace on the road to Damascus. And a life of self-righteousness was gripped by a righteous Savior. And Paul knew firsthand the amazing grace of God. A grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. 
And as Jesus himself says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for no other reason, friends. He came for no other reason. Paul now lives for no other reason. The question is, do we share that reason? Do we share the clarity of mission, the singular pursuit for which we exist? The gospel encourages us to be missional because God left heaven and earth so we could belong to him. There is no way we can claim the promise of Christ and receive the benefits of his righteousness and not be moved by the missional heart of God. For Paul, this was a man moved by the gospel. Wherever he went, whoever he was with, whatever his agenda, his priority remained the same to tell the world about Jesus. He even made tents so he could tell the world about Jesus. Everything was about this one objective. And as we prepare this morning now to even take communion, and we consider and contemplate even more the profound significance of a price paid for us because of this missional heart of God, I want to invite us into a moment of reflection that includes not just the beauty of what these elements represent, friends. But I want to invite us in relationship to our study this morning to reflect on some things. You might think, for example, as this music is being played, what aspect of the gospel encourages you most? What aspect of the gospel encourages you most? Or perhaps another way I can ask this, what area in your life do you feel the hope of the gospel needs to shine more brightly? Out of these five examples that we walked through this morning, does the gospel, for example, elevate your heart towards gratitude and thanksgiving? Does the gospel move you toward humility? Has the gospel set your heart on fire for those who don't know the truth of Jesus? Has the gospel allowed you to see prayer as a privilege, not a duty? What aspect of the gospel encourages you the most? Or what aspect of the gospel do you need to be encouraged in today?